welcome to the Keen on Yoga podcast, bringing you the stories of many people who in various ways are attempting to walk the path of yoga. Our intention is to inspire your own practice and commitment to yoga beyond the mat and in all areas of life. We consider this an offering, a service to the community and labour of love. If you feel inclined, any donations are appreciated, just visit our page and click the donate button at www.keenonyoga.co.uk forward slash podcast. I hope you enjoy the show. Today's guest on the Keenan Yoga podcast is Peg Marqueen. Peg is a rarefied figure in the Ashtanga community, the first person to think of starting an Ashtanga podcast. What the hell was that? And now we're all at it. And her podcast, Ashtanga Dispatch, is the household name in the Ashtanga world. Starting back in 2015, she has interviewed many of the prominent teachers of Ashtanga alongside her daughter, Megan Powell. Amongst these, she's even interviewed the elusive Shirati Joyce on no less than two occasions. I wish I had. The interviews are well thought out and in-depth, and I've certainly very much enjoyed hearing many teachers speak, though I had previously granted kind of mythological status. Her interview style, opposed to mine, is perhaps more upbeat and vocal, I have to say, although I couldn't emulate it, but she's definitely inspired me, which is why I jumped at the chance to interview her and hear particularly from her, because... Peg is an extraordinary teacher in her own right, a mum, a teacher, as well as a staunch advocate for the practice, being applicable and representative of women and to women and their needs. And she also has a wealth of learning and stories regarding her unique experience maintaining Ashtanga Dispatch. So I feel strongly that we need more voices like Peg's in the Ashtanga community. And I'm very happy that this erudite and knowledgeable practitioner and teacher finally got to speak a little more about their journey with yoga. Welcome, Peg. Welcome to the Ashtanga Dispatch Podcast. I'm Peg Mulqueen, your host. No, this is the Kiva Yoga Podcast. Come on, Peg. <laughs> no, this isn't my podcast. <laughs> well, it's a joint podcast. How about that? I can share. You can share? Like, oh, that's why I'm honoured. <laughs> no, actually, actually, Adam... I am really honored. Like, this is delightful. And I have to tell you, I think you might, you are the very first person that has ever invited me. Really? Yeah. That's crazy. Thank you. Well, there you go. Now I'm very excited to talk to you. And now I'm really honest. Um, <laughs> let's start then. And, and well, I want to ask you how you started, how you got into the, the podcast, why you started it, for what, yeah, for, for what reason motivated you? Because you were the first one, as I talked to before the, before we started this, you know, we had a long chat and, uh, you know, and Peg was the first one to do this. And now everyone like me is chiming in with it. But, you know, back in the day, you know, people didn't even know what a podcast was. What motivated you to start? Oh, what was it my idea as like most things? So when Ashtanga Dispatch, like the name came about because I used to live in DC and in DC, Ashtanga had a, a really bad reputation, like only teachers practiced and there were rumors of injury and there were no yeah. female teachers. Sure there were. Right. Okay. Okay. So then Jen, my friend, Jen Renee was going to open up a program 
first woman, not authorized. But we kind of needed to make this more approachable. We needed to make this something that people would feel like they could walk into, a room they could walk into. So we felt like we needed to give it another name. And we also made really silly videos. So we made silly videos and gave it the name Ashtanga Dispatch. And that was... So we started kind of... I did my writing and my blogging and made the silly videos. And Jen was the teacher. So basically, I was the comedic act and she was the real thing. But my at the same time, I was involved in other yoga communities, one of which is the Baptiste yoga community. And my friend, Leah Collis. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. So, and Leah and mm. my friend, yeah. And um, so, she got together a group that taught at the White House during the Obama years, um, at, during the Easter egg roll. Uh-huh. I was part of that group that taught yoga at the right. on the White House lawn during Easter. And Chris Lucas was cool. also part of that group. And at the time, he was doing a lot of things for Barron. So we all became friends. Chris started watching what I was doing, making my silly videos with a stronger dispatch, blogging, whatever. And he said to me, Peg, you've got something with this stronger dispatch. Like there's something to it. And I said, oh, and he goes, have you ever thought about a podcast? And I said, does anybody even listen to those? And at the time, this serial podcast had just been released. It was seven years ago. It was when, do you remember serial, the podcast serial? It's old. old. Yeah, the podcast old. Um, So it might be. I thought it was older than that, to be honest. Oh, I don't know. It might be. It, it, it actually might be. I remember. And, you know, I'm not really good with numbers. Um, I shouldn't say that as an Ashtangi, but I'm not. <laughs> because, we don't so, get John Scott on here asking you about your vinyasa. Oh, for God's sakes. I know, right? I'd have to yeah. count out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah. I, so I said, well, does anybody listen to those? He said, have you ever heard of Serial? And I said, no, but I'll go listen. And he said, I think we should do one. We'll do a few. That's what he said. We'll do a few. I'll help you. So he set the whole thing up. All I had to do was like interview people. And I just wrote to a bunch of people. Nobody knew what podcast was, but they all said yes. And they were all super cool because I I knew a lot of them anyway. And um, as with most things, Adam, if I would have known then what I know now, like I went into it knowing nothing. And I think that made it easier to start it. A, because somebody else was doing everything mm-hmm. for me. Chris, by the way, ended up producing and editing that podcast for years. So that's why the sound quality may have changed when it when it changed hands. He actually does... Have you heard of Own Practice? The um, online Own Practice. He runs that. That's his... That's his... Uh, his next project. And he did that before COVID. Like, he's always been one of those people who just could see something coming down the line and he's an idea person and he is brilliant and amazing. And he doesn't practice Ashtanga. He just kind of knew of its reputation and he really enjoyed the fact that we were shifting that idea and trying to broaden it and again, make it more inclusive and feel more welcoming. And he was just saying, Hey, here's another platform. Let's do it. And it luckily there weren't that many people like I can't imagine doing it now when there's so many, there was just so few at that point that it was just sheer numbers that allowed us to grow, you know, that the lack of numbers, yeah. you yeah. know? 
but yeah. And your message was to, to kind of expand Ashtanga out of a potentially slightly rigid way of conceiving it, right? Yeah, and certainly that different. That was the driving force behind it to make it inclusive and to make it kind of not so maybe dour, like a little bit more spirited. Or, oh my God. Or, you know, Adam, like, when I first started Ashtanga, so when I first started, when I first started practicing yoga, okay, yoga, let's go just forget. And I was working on a doctorate at UVA in education. I was um, the director of counseling for a school system and an avid kickboxer, loved kickboxing, started taking a, cl- a yoga class at the gym, right? It was like, I went to the dojo for kickboxing. No, actually I took my yoga class first, went to the dojo for kickboxing. I would leave when they would all rest so that I could make my kickboxing class. I really did not see much use in the, I was just doing it. Just the other round. Sure, surely there'd be yoga to relax and after kickboxing. This was right? like, what, 16, 17 years ago. So a long time ago. So there wasn't any, nobody was there to tell you how. This was just a, a person at the gym yeah. who'd done a weekend workshop. I did it. Anyway, she was pregnant and she was like, I need somebody to teach this class. And you can do the physical postures. It, she didn't say it like that, but that's really what she was saying. Can you teach it? I'm a teacher. I can do the postures. It makes sense. I would teach it. Well, I'm a teacher. So what did I do? I went to the library to look for a book and I found a book. I found John Scott's book and I looked at it and I was like, oh, this makes sense. Beautiful curriculum laid out well. It's intelligent, sensible. I used that as my curriculum and adapted as I felt necessary because that's what you do when you're a teacher. You teach the person, and if a kid's not getting it or a person's not getting it, you change what the way you teach it so that they can, right? The object of, is learning. Yeah. Again, if yeah. I knew then what I know now, I probably wouldn't have done it. But then, so I started teaching that way. Things um, escalated. You know, once you start to study something to teach it, you really study it. And I started learning a lot more. And it really spoke to me. I was a counselor, but what I found was the people that were, that I was now teaching yoga to were making real changes in their lives. Like they were really thriving. And so I started teaching it at the school to some of the high school students and some of my counseling groups. And it just grew that one day I got my contract and I was like, I'm going to open a yoga studio. I quit my doctoral program. I didn't sign my contract and I opened a tiny yoga studio. Anyway, I was teaching and then I, somebody, a friend of mine was going to my store and she said, will you practice with me? And because I'm going to have to know some of the stuff when I go over there. And she tells me, I remember we got to maybe the middle of the primary series, which is where I would start doing the adaptations. Right. And she said, Oh no, 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 you're not allowed. They will kick you out. And I was like, what? They'll kick you out. And she said, yeah, they'll ask you to leave here. And I, I just thought, that is bullshit. Really? They'll ask me to leave because, and I just couldn't understand that as a teacher, like as a teacher therapist, I couldn't understand that idea. So then I'd heard about 
then people start telling you stories about how they all got injured and how it's only for teachers and blah, blah. And I just thought, I don't want any part of that. And so I took trainings with Shiva Ray. I, I got with the Baptist community. I practiced other things and then found my way back into it. And that was David Kyle. So he likes to say he converted me. So we had this like little practice group. Fast forward 10 years, 12 years, 10 years later, maybe, no, maybe less than that, maybe eight years. And we had a little practice group where we would self-practice in the morning. I would do my adapted, you know, Ashtanga yoga series. And they were all Ashtangis. And a lot of them have actually gone on and become authorized teachers through my store, whatever. But we just self-practiced together. So then they were like, okay, David Kyle is coming in and he's doing a Mysore. You should do it. And I was like, I don't know. I don't know. And they're like, come on. And I'm like, okay, fine. I'll sign up for the five days and do it. And I remember I would stop around the middle of primary and David Kyle looked at me and we've been friends for so long. So I can't really remember when this was. I want to say it was like 2008, 2007 or eight, maybe. And he says, Peg, why are you stopping there? And I said, I don't know. I don't know. And he said, do the next posture. And I said, what is it? And he like tells me what it is in Sanskrit. And I go, what's that? And he goes, okay, go home and learn this and then come back tomorrow. And like, <laughs> so, so anyway, I remember getting to Supta Kramasana and he took me out of Supta Kramasana. This is day three into a handstand. Yeah. And I thought, nobody told me this about Ashtanga. This is cool. Like I thought that was the coolest thing in the world. And I was hooked. I was like, yes, I'm doing this. And he was so love. He's, he is like, to me, David Kyle is what I want to grow up to be. Like I want to grow up and be David <laughs> Kyle. <laughs> He is such. I liked him. I, I, I've interviewed him as well. Very practical, uh, very down to earth. Um, slightly, in some ways, slightly cynical, which I quite like. Um, but yeah, that 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 has done thing. That's that shows his teacher, right? You know. Well, and but not only like that, you know yeah, what he yeah. saw? He saw me. He knew that I was I was following your rules because I heard about your rules. I'm not going to like break. And, and what right. he did was he said, "It's okay." to play. It's okay. You can be yourself. He knew that would speak to me and he did it and he was right. And I realized it that yes, there is rigidity, but it doesn't have to be that way. You can, he never did it with me ever again. He did it with Megan on her first um, week of my story. Right, and, but I, he see, never, I see it's a little shtick going on now, isn't he, it? Well, he, like, well, he looks at the students. How does the people in? But, how do I reach that person? How can yeah, I speak yeah. a language that actually they re that resonates with them? How can I speak to their heart? And so it wasn't about, yes, I did have to memorize too. He made me, you know, memorize those things and like, and it was funny and, and I didn't mind because I saw that he saw me, mm. you know? Yeah. So let's backtrack now. Sorry. So or maybe not, but look, when you started the podcast, you had this certain impression of expanding the dialogue and making it something which was, you know, a little bit more inclusive, a little bit more welcoming, let's say, right? 
um, a little bit more uh, taking the person as they are um, rather than, you know, kind of a method, you know, this is why big bugbear, you know, there's this template that's dropped on someone, you know, like, like, you've got to fit into this, you know, like for what ends, you right? like <laughs> for, for being, for being endorsed again or being valid again. That's just, just very frustrating for me to, to see this going on once more in the Ashtanga world. Um, and, and then, you know, over the time you've interviewed, I don't know, I mean, if I've, if I've interviewed 50 people, you must have interviewed way more than that. How have your views on things changed as you've gone over and you've interviewed all these people? Can you I don't think that my that views, my, my basic okay. premise hasn't changed. Like I've always, okay. I don't think my, that has changed. I've always been, I mean, as a counselor, I was, I was always worked with helping people. I've always been that person, yeah. educator, yeah, counselor. Yeah, I suppose I was expecting you to say, well, I, I, I came in wishing for it to be inclusive, and now I feel... <laughs> yeah, now, now I'm back to rigid. Now I like to count. Now um, I'm actually elitist. Yeah, yeah. I feel it's a rigid elitist system. And <laughs> What I've gotten is more... Yeah, yeah. What, what I've gotten is more comfortable in using my voice. That's what's changed. I remember David, David and I, like I said, we've been friends for a really long time. And I remember there was a time yeah. when I was saying to him in my living room, we're sitting in my living room and I was like, David, I am, why aren't there more women? Why are, why am I searching for women here? And I have like, there are things that are particular to women. And I just feel like there's no one speaking to those. There's no female role models. There's no one. And he was like, looking at me and you know, David, he's looked at me and he goes, what do you think you are? What do you think your role is? I mean, you need to like look in the mirror. And it was weird because I hadn't really seen myself that way. I just saw myself as hmm. I'm still making silly videos and being a student interviewing people, but I didn't see my voice as being a meaningful contribution to to the practice or to the community. I just saw myself as a media person, not as anything more than that. And, um, and I was still looking for what I wanted outside of me. So your question was, how have I changed? I think that's the part that changed. Once I learned what the rules were and what the, uh, the right. structure about the practice, I tried very hard. I didn't want to be disliked and I didn't want, so I wanted to make it inclusive, yeah, but I wanted to it know my, tough. I kept yeah. my place. I felt very timid right. and I knew my place. And that was not as a voice. Yeah, I mean, it also just shows how times have changed, doesn't it? Because I mean, at the time we were kind of told, or don't, almost like don't have a website, you know, don't post pictures of yourself. I remember Mark Roberts, a thread about Mark, or using Instagram or Facebook, and people really going to town. He said, look, you know, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm supporting, you know, I want to have a family, I want to support a family here, I want to make a, you know, living here, right? I'm going to, I'm going to promote myself, you know, fair Fair enough to him, you know, and now look, everyone's chiming in now. It's okay, isn't it? But, you know, it takes courage. I think it takes courage to put yourself out there. I remember um, I asked Kino, that was the, we were, so we were driving around and we well, were. Oh, Kino as well. Look at Kino. It's a perfect example. Well, that's why I, I asked her. I remember yeah. sitting in the back seat and we were driving, we were doing a photo shoot down in DC. And so I said to her, how do you do it? Like, how do you not let that get to you? And she said, yeah. You do not let yourself get distracted. You know what your purpose yeah. is, and anything else is a distraction. 
in the nicest way, Kino's a machine, you know, like she just doesn't seem to, you know, she just goes for it. And I, I've always thought that she was fantastic, you know, and always, if you're listening, Kino, I've always stood up for you and please come on my podcast. <laughs> well, I mean, I appreciated that from her. <laughs> she, she, she eluded my grasp over a year of the podcast. I always had her one time in my net, but then the COVID came. She was bloody coming to London, you know. And I was in London. Oh, that would have been. She is. And she is amazing. Like I just remember. She we went out for a cup of tea, and loads of people came and queued for for while she was having lunch for photos with them and stuff. And I just said, yeah, I think I said something similar to it at the time. Like, how the hell do you cope with this? Um, so you found your voice now. What is your What is your voice? What would you say is how does that come out? Because you're representing more. I mean, it is. I still find it harder to get women to talk in the podcast than men, to be fair, you know, to be honest, right? Um, and you're speaking up and for women in practice and what that means. Um, yeah, what does that mean? Well, Adam, the reason why women don't talk is seriously, women get, get, right. they really, they're much more target. They're much more vulnerable. They're, it, I agree. It's, yeah. it's really hard and you have to have some really thick skin and, or as mm. Kino said, and I always use her advice, I don't get distracted. I've stopped reading reviews. I try not to listen. Yeah. If somebody, it's, it's okay. Like you have to accept that because I have a responsibility. I do believe that, well, this practice has changed my life. I love this practice. I love it. Like I legit love it. I have grown with it. I have met fantastic people through it. I think it's brilliant in the way it is designed. I think we can learn so much about ourselves. I, but I see it as bigger and broader and more inclusive of so many other facets of life than just yeah. a series or a pose or whatever. And, and now with Instagram and, um, it's still so we still are so very narrow sometimes in our, in our way. So what happens is somebody has a baby, somebody gets older, somebody gets injured. Um, somebody doesn't have a teacher COVID. And all of a sudden we're like, Oh, there went my practice because it doesn't now fit into this, um, very small mm. box that we've made it into. So we feel like my voice is just saying, let's, soften the lines a little, um, open the sides. Like this is okay. No one's going rogue here. Like we're not a circus. Like it's honestly more circus act when you stick to the, the very serious, but like this is supposed to enrich and feed our lives and make us bring us joy. Right. Isn't that like what practices designed? And so it's not. So to me, it, in the beginning, it was very much I was very much a woman's voice. And I think a mom in particular, because I did right. feel like they mm -hmm. felt very disenfranchised. You know, it was your practice changes after you have when you have small children. It does. Uh, yeah. I mean, you just can't. Yeah. And your body changes. You know, my body changed through menopause. Not that I will subject you to the menopause talk right now. I will not. But <laughs> no, I mean, I'm interested in expanding this issue. You know, I really am, and I'm trying to get, I'm trying to get a workshop um, done on menopause. If you fancy teaching it, you can. 
I would. I think it's very important. If anyone's listening out there, if you would to peg honestly, I, I, I feel very. I feel very strongly. It needs to be expanded for for women that had children. You know, that just the process of having children is huge, and then obviously the issue of menopause is also huge. And for God's sake, I mean, like as we were talking beforehand, I mean, if you're put off practice because if you can't do this, you can't you know go past half primary, or if you can't you know you can't do a whole primary series, you can't do anything. I mean, it's just ridiculous, you know. Um, and uh, you know, so yeah, full, full power to you. I'm, I'm really pleased. You, you know, you should you should speak out. Yeah, Mary, something really simple, um, like you know, a woman's uh, center balance is lower than a man's. So like, yeah. I, I was obsessed with pressing up, obsessed. And um, oh, really? yeah, totally. I can now. I was I was trying can to press you? up like a man. Yeah, yeah, I can. Um, Fifty five, still can do it. I do it like once. That's a week. incredible. Yeah. That's in- but incredible. it was all about finding my center balance. I've been practicing. I feel like most right. of my strong. I practice like a man. I notice that with women, they'll have mm. their hands further apart when they do jump backs and jump throughs. And what they're yeah. doing is a man's hands will be further apart because your your shoulders are broader. But a woman's are not as broad and our hips are, are bigger. So even the way, for example, the bakasana exit, right? Where the hips go up just a little. You in a man, his shoulders are wider and hips typically, just typically, and hips are smaller, right? I'm not saying all men are yeah. like this or all women yeah. are like this, yeah. Yeah. but yeah. typically yeah. No, a man's shoulders are wider yeah. and his hips are smaller. Yeah. So that yeah. doing that um, lifting of the hips that is at an angle at your shoulders makes a lot of sense. I, um, it, it doesn't, it would not, it would be a functional way to do it. A woman, her shoulders are more narrow and hips are usually bigger. That is a good way to destroy your shoulders is to continue to try to do that over time. And you see women's shoulders going out a lot, especially at a certain age. Yeah, I'm pretty pleased you, yes, pleased you can speak. I've I tried to get, I have to say, I've tried to get a few women to say the differences in practice between a man and a woman. And, you know, I don't really have, I haven't had many, that's really good to hear because there are differences. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. I've often introduced a question and it hasn't really met much of a retort. So, yeah. Okay, just to change a little pace there because everyone wants to hear about your interviews as well. So, we'll come back to other things about what we feel, but um, let's just give the public what they want and ask do you have any interviews that stand out for you? Eddie Stern was like my bucket list. Like, I really wanted to interview Eddie and I didn't know him that well, but then, so I was going to be in New York and I emailed him and he's so good about email. Like he's always answers. He's very sweet. And I said, I'm going to be in Long Island. Do you think like I was thinking about on my way home practicing and we could do an interview after he emails back. Yes. Exclamation mark. Come practice. I assumed that it also meant and we'll do the interview. <laughs> so I got to, so I forget that he lives in, that it's New York and that I can't find parking and I'm coming from Long Island and there's a lot of traffic. I'm, you know, I flown in from Montana. I forgot for some reason all about traffic. So I'm late. 
So I get to his house because remember, his Shala at the point was in Brooklyn in his house in the basement. So you get there and you check in in the kitchen and then you go down the basement to where practice is. And I'm late. Like it's only, we've got 40 minutes left. He comes over, gives me a new Tita assist. And he says, Pagmal Queen. And I said, yes. And he said, he said, good to meet you. You have to finish up by this time. And I said, no problem. And so... I finish up and I go up to the kitchen and then there's some people in the kitchen and they're all like, Oh, you're a stronger dispatch. And I'm like, yeah. And they're like, are you interviewing Eddie? And I'm like, yeah. And, and I'm sitting again in his kitchen and shawl is over. Cause I had, I was the last one there and people start to dwindle and he goes upstairs. I figure he's going upstairs to get showered. So I sit at the kitchen table. People are talking to me. It's fine. It's not awkward yet. The guys that were checking people in, they've left. Now we're down to like one last person in the kitchen with me. And finally she goes, well, I got to go. And she leaves. And I'm sitting in Eddie Stern's kitchen now alone. And now I have been there for 45 minutes after practice. And I don't know what to do. Do I, if I leave... And he comes down, then I'm a dick because I've just stood up Eddie Stern and you don't do like, I'm not going to do that. If I stay, I'm a stalker. And he could, (laughs) I don't see a good way out of this and I don't know what to do. So I work up the nerve and I, I email him because he's a good emailer. Email him. Yeah, that's what I've done. Yeah. yeah, So, hey, I'm downstairs. Are we doing that interview today? And he writes back, oh, ha, ha, no, I've got to work. (laughs) And I said, okay, thank you for not calling the police. I'm leaving now. (laughs) And I snuck back. I was so embarrassed. I was so... And we obviously have done two interviews since then. And he's fantastic and amazing. Yeah. Um, he's a busy man, um, but he's quite on point. And um, yeah, you, you, yeah, probably don't mess around. I, I had a break in the um, the internet reception when I interviewed him, and so we're having this very in depth conversation. In fact, Eddie was one of the hardest ones because half of it was him interviewing me uh, <laughs> about my questions to him. So, like, well, what do you mean by that? And I was like, oh, sorry, no, I just asked you a question. Um, I don't want to <laughs> answer. Um, and then he goes, and then there's suddenly the internet drops off. Oh, God. Um, and then he, so, so we're going to it. And then he suddenly just pops up again. The internet, and he pops up just there, just like, you know, just there, clear and on. You know, just, and he goes, okay, what did you hear me last say? <laughs> what did I last say? <laughs> I, like, um, <laughs> I think you were talking about uh, the parasympathetic nervous system. <laughs> no, Ed, that interview with Eddie petrified me. Um, but I don't have any stories like that because I haven't really, I haven't done, I was going to do Keno in person, but we never got there. And I haven't done anyone in person. I've done it all over Zoom. Um, so some were more intense than others. Santina's pretty intense. Um, Stephen Remete, you should interview him. I don't know if you, have you, I think I've got one over on you. You haven't interviewed Shandor, have you? Shadow Yoga? No. Shandor, no. Oh God, interview Shandor. He's, he's a wild. Yeah. Yeah. That's really esoteric stuff. And that was very intense, but yeah, nothing, nothing untoward. I can't, I I haven't got really any great stories. (laughs) Tell you one of Gregor and the tape recorder. 
I am technologically uh, challenged. And we were sitting and Gregor had an hour carved out for us. That was it. Like he had a teacher training that he was doing and I was in Byron. It was my last week. We drove up to his house and we set up, he's right to business. You know, he's like one of those people. And we'd already conducted another interview with him over the internet that did not work because of my Wi-Fi. And so it was unfortunate. It was a great interview, but it just, the audio was terrible, even for my ears. So we sat down, we got right to business, you know, and it's really hard when you're doing the, you know, that when you're having these conversations and you don't know somebody really well, it's hard to just jump into a conversation. It doesn't, it's just, you need a little bit of, but we didn't have it. So we jumped right in. And so I didn't really have time to kind of warm up even myself. And somewhere along the line, I must've hit pause instead of record. So we were talking and he gets to a part where he says Ashtanga yoga is a cult. And I don't know what made me look at that point, just maybe the word cult. And I looked down and I realized my red light was blinking, which meant it was on pause. And I could feel my whole face turning red. I couldn't breathe. I was sweating under my armpits. I was like, oh my God, I'm going to die. And Megan was with me and she said she's never seen me actually lose my shit like not like she could tell yeah. that I was and I said uh, I, I, I still looked I, I, I still compulsively check the recording yeah, yeah I now I double record Megan records I'll consistently think did I press record mm. yeah, I press record oh god I always do yeah. true now I'm well, always but yeah anyway I had to tell, tell him he was so like oh I could tell he was like looking at me like really and I felt terrible. And he, so then he had, we hit re-record. He went over his whole thing, a little matter of fact. So the beginning of the podcast is definitely a little um, terse, but then he was wonderful. And he fast forwarded right to the cult part and went on from there. And like, he was, he was fantastic after. But for that moment, I thought he's going to kill me. Like he is probably thinking, who the hell is this woman that I've just had in my house? <laughs> what am I? But he was, he was super sweet after and it, and it worked out, but I, and I did learn a really valuable lesson and that is always have a backup. Check, check your tape recorder. Say the thing about your ad. He was honestly in relationship wise, he really does enjoy families. Like anybody that knows him knows yes. he's incredibly family centered yes. and having mother and daughter in the Shala it was always quite, he always made it quite special. He was always sweet to us and he was always good to us. And when I asked him to do the interview, he agreed. And I was really surprised because he'd never done a You did podcast. it in Mysore. Mm-hmm, I did it in Mysore. And, uh, yeah. the, and the, the power went out in the middle of it and all of that. But he was, um, it was sweet. He was a little timid in the, in the first, in the first one. I could tell like it, he was a little nervous. He's a little shy and not mm, as... No, you- well, if you met him when Darby Joyce was still alive, he was very shy. Oh, you know, was he's he? Completely. Yeah, I didn't know that. Developed in that role. Yeah, no, yeah, he was very, very shy. He was. I mean, I remember hosting him. Well, I did host with trees. My wife hosted at Purple Valley, and um, oh. at that time, he wouldn't talk. He wouldn't do anything other than uh, posture names in the afternoon. 
you know, there were no conference. He wouldn't, you know, it was just learn the posture, chart the posture names, but he wouldn't give any advice or anything. You know, he's completely, things have changed. But yeah, I always ask it. I've asked him a whole bunch of times for an interview and I haven't got a response yet. Um, I remember he came up to me in, in the shala after I practiced and he said, I want to do it again. <laughs> I was like, okay. <laughs> and so we, and, and he, this time he like, he understood that it was recorded. It was just really sweet. And he was so good and so wonderful. When he came to Stanford, we went to practice with him and I was, I really, I gave him all the links. I did my best to like, cause like I said, he was very accommodating, very sweet to us. Um, I think he does like really love families and, and that speaks to me. So that was like very nice to have someone who appreciated that. When he came to Stanford, I remember I was laying there and he came over and he goes, mom, going hiking after. <laughs> I said, okay. Um, and that was, you know, and he said, told me who to talk to. And, and like, so we went hiking and uh, we went into Muir, John, the John Muir forest and there's a little group of us and most of the time he was telling Megan how she should photograph because Megan's a photographer and he's a photographer so they were having their photography talks a lot of the time but then we went for coffee after and I remember he walked up to me and he took me aside and he said I just want to say thank you and I, I didn't see that coming and I said for what? and he said for everything that you do. And hmm. I don't think that I had ever heard a story like that about them. It. it was just a very short, like, but it was, it felt, it touched me. I just thought he does yeah. know he is watching. He understood. It was like, he understood what I was doing. It wasn't like, I don't know. I think some people misread and they think it's all about media and attention and Instagram and and all of that. And and that's never been, Adam, that's never been my purpose for anything that I do. Mm. I only got a Facebook account so I could stalk my teenage daughter. Like that was the reason <laughs> I did it was because Instagram had just come out and I thought I better watch what's going on. And so I have an alias. Yeah. yeah and yeah. that was, and it just, but it was never, none of these things have ever been about popularity, followers, likes. It's always been from a, a very genuine, sincere place of supporting other people and helping. I just, I just thought Shrat would be really mad at me for, for giving so many different uh, perspectives air on the tradition. And, uh, you know, what, um, moving on, what do you think then about, we talked a little bit about your ideas of tradition um, and, you know, like you're in a prime place as I'm in a way, like we've spoken to a lot of people. We've, we've listened to a lot of, a lot of hours of, you know, of discussion on, you know, these ideas. We have the Patabi choice. We have, uh, you know, the recent issues with guruship and we have what tradition means. Can you, when you say something about e- both, both of those or either one of those? Well, you know what I'm going to ask you is define tradition. Okay. I kind of walked into that. Yeah. I should have known. Um, well, when we're talking tradition, we're talking in a very, very generic way about the Mysore so-called inverted commas tradition. When you say so-called, again, you have to explain because I don't know what that means. 
what does tradition uh, mean when you're when you're using it, Adam? As you're using it, what does tradition mean? As I'm using it, I'm not necessarily the standing behind this term, but as I'm using it, it's the, the, there's a certain structure of series in Mysore and it needs to be practiced in a particular way in order for it to be called Ashtanga Yoga and you to be called an Ashtanga practitioner. So you're talking a very literal the map? Yes, the most literal, yes, the most literal kind of dissemination of the method of Ashtanga Yoga to follow vinyasa and, you know, you stop at a certain posture if you can't do the next one. And, uh, you know, I'm getting into this now. Um, okay, all the little going. things. Don't take, don't take, don't take your toe like that. Take it like this. Uh, follow your drishti. Um, you know, all this stuff. There's so much to, you know. And that is a very literal sense. You should get into a conversation with Richard Freeman about that. He loves to talk about the literal um, interpretation of things. But nothing can be understood in isolation. Everything must be understood within context. And so what you've described is a very literal, like describing the map on a piece of paper or describing or going by Google Maps or something like that. And that's the map. Well, also, it's a very, also, it's a, you know, it's a, it's not a, a completely opposite metaphor because it's not even a, a, like a objective map is it's one person's map. You know, this is like one person's drawing of the map, you know, as well. It's a very generalized, oh, you know, it might work going over there like that, you know. We have a place up the road that has public land and people use it as a shooting range. And there is a shooting range and public land, but this is a dirt road that goes up and it's a primitive road. And I'm always walking the dogs up there. And on Google Maps, on Google Maps, it shows that the property, that the the lining along the road is the public land. So there's a big sign that says private property, no trespassing. There's a barbed wire fence. And every time I walk up there, there's two guys in a pickup truck and and a gun and they've broken through the fence. I mean, now they no longer even fix the fence because people break through it all the time and they're using it as a shooting range. And I always walk up to them and I say, this is private property. And they, and they immediately get their phone and show me, no, no, look, it says it right here. This is, and I'm like, this is a road that doesn't even exist. And you're showing me your phone. There is a sign and barbed wire right there that tells you otherwise. But I think that's what we do. It's written on a piece of paper or this, and we ignore all these contextual cues and we follow this rigid thing that's not even real. That map, that line on your phone, it's not real. Like you're supposed to use these things as a guide, as a, as suggestions or guidelines or directional, but not as literal. And tradition, as far as I understand it, and when we say tradition, I think of the way things have been done for years and years and years. And when you think about teaching, the way it was done, the way yoga was taught, it was taught to people. We didn't teach poses. We taught people. And to my, and the best teachers 
are still the ones that teach people, not poses or series or whatever. And we don't know what we don't know, Adam. And that's the thing. It's like, you know, I had a group of women who I remember I went to teach somewhere in the Midwest and I got there and it was when I was just first starting to travel and teach. And all these women were lining up to talk to me and they were all apologizing about their practice. I can't, I used to be able to stand up from a back bend. I can't anymore. I used to be able to, I'm sorry. I haven't done this in a while. I've been, and finally I just said, oh my God, after like the fifth woman, I was like, okay, can we just, I'm not understanding where this is coming from because obviously I told you about David Kyle. It wasn't my experience. And the last person who had been there said, you just need to get up earlier. The one in particular I'm thinking of, she had five kids all under the age of 10. And I thought, you're going to tell a mother of five kids that she needs to get up earlier. She'd probably not sleep in any way. Like how about draw back? How about look at this woman as a person and think maybe you're doing too much. Like, how can we help? How Mm. can I support you? How can, how can we do a practice that works and for you? And so I was like, yeah, like tradition to me, it used to be that the numbers were small and you taught people, whoever came into you, you looked at them and helped them. But then when numbers got so big, we had to go into classroom management style, right? And so you need more yeah. rules. The yeah. bigger something is, the more rules you need so that you can keep order. So order became the name of the game. And I still think that that's a place. If you've got a group of 300, 200 people, 50 people, you do need to have some order. Like you can't have, it's, there has to be some of that. But if you have a group and my sort to me, the beauty of it was that it was always small. I never teach more than 15 at a time. Never. I don't want to because then it becomes, then I'm, then I'm doing classroom management, not really teaching um, people and being able to get to know them. So tradition to me was always smaller. They didn't have huge groups. We did that. We grew those. And so then we had to keep order, but then we taught that that became, that got adopted as tradition. And I just don't believe that. I believe that small is going to be the new big. I believe COVID did what nothing else could do. It finally dismantled it. You know what? Disruption. Disruption is not a bad thing. To have something be disrupted means we have to stop and pause and relook and rethink. And COVID may have scared the bejesus out of us in the beginning because all of a sudden we're like, well, crap. Now what am I going to do? No one to tell me what to do, how to do it. You know, who's going to... We did what we did. You were asking me about Indy, about the cold, my Indian dog. And I said, she's resilient. She grows a second coat now. We're resilient. We figured (laughs) out how to practice. You just start. And we did. And I think people now, after a year, and I think it took this long, I think now home practitioners, uh, uh, and everyone's a home practitioner pretty much right now, I think we figured out like, oh, this rhythm works for me. We've gotten enough away from that literal interpretation, that very strict role following to a place where, how do I do this? How does this work for me? Well, I think though, is that if I, 
on the other to play devil's advocate with you is if I hadn't had some kind of method or a bit of a framework or a little bit I don't want to say a heavy hand but a little bit of stricture and a little bit of strictness around my early days of practicing I think I would have just done what the the hell I wanted when you're teaching somebody for the first time you you do give them more guidance but do you how do you think my kids would like it my 24 year old son and my 28 year old daughter if I treated them the same way that I treated them when they were five and and 10, you know, they would be a little resentful, like mom, a little bit more freedom. I think, I, you know, I think I can figure, what if I still told them what time to go to bed and what to eat for dinner? And at some point, we're, like you're supposed to work yourself out of a job. You know, your job as a parent is to get rid of your kids. I think your job as a teacher is to not be that person. Get, get rid of your students. Yeah, you should. Yeah. Yeah. But I've always said that about my students. Please, at a certain point, be independent of me. I think it's, yeah. But, well, also, yeah, we are, um, you know, Ashtanga is a little bit trademarked, isn't it? There's something going on, you know, about keeping one's own students to oneself and, you know, protectionism and competitive aspects around the Ashtanga practice as well. But that know, comes from a place of scarcity. That comes from a place of me. It's about me. Then I need, I well, yeah. need you to of course, need yeah. me. <laughs> yeah. Like I need you. There's no benefit for the student of no. this kind of mentality. Yeah, <laughs> obviously. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, can you just, um, can you just say a few things about the, um, the Patabi Joyce? Um, and the, the guruship thing that you were talking about to me before? I left space in the beginning for teachers that had a very close relationship with Patabi Joyce to process what was going on. I told you, I, you know, by training, I'm, I'm a therapist. And even though I teach yoga now, mm. and I certainly have let that go, I do understand the complexity of having a relationship with someone and having them also do horrible things to hold love and anger mm. in the in the same space that it was that was very, a really good point you made yeah it yeah. was very tricky and I, it wasn't as tricky for me i had no relationship with the man it was a very black and white mm. issue for me and very easy but i know enough to know that that's why it was easy for me because i didn't have and i was also 50, you know i'm also in my 50s so if i've you know i I never would have put somebody up as guru. Like that wouldn't have been my style anyway. So, but I'm in my fifties. So it's a little bit different. I'm not a 20 something year old who traveled to another country. And it was a very different country at that point. I, you know, a lot of people were looking for father figures and uh, developed super, you know, superhuman relationships with, with someone. So when something happens, when trauma happens, you go back to the place you were when it happened. So even though what ends up happening, you get stunted in that age. So you're 19 Mm. and you're in or 21 in my store and you're in a 20. I mean, I was a very different person in my early twenties than I am now. Um, I don't think anyone would take such 
liberties with me. I think, you know, I'm a little more intimidating and definitely more outspoken, as you have said. But at 21, maybe not. I would want to be accepted. A group think takes over and you start to like, you don't want to be different. And that's really kind of the whole um, developmental process at that point. So what you end up doing, your brain shuts out things that happened and it's not right, but it is a coping mechanism. Anyway, we, you and I were talking about this and they just said, mm. I wouldn't have people on the podcast that were still, that would in any way defend the behavior because the behavior was wrong. It was abusive and it was wrong and it was damaging. And, and it's, Horrifying, and as a woman, though I can tell you, it was also common that happened when you had men in power and a woman. You know, I mean, that when we give our power away, that is how these things um, happen. And also, we we live in a place, a society that is given that power so readily and made women in a place. It's, where- it's, to be quite honest, Vic, it's incredibly, incredibly common. You were there. This, right, I spent a year doing homeopathy. Uh, you know, don't <laughs> don't write in on that. Um, but you know, what I what I found was when I talked to people about their stories was I must have had eighty percent, eighty percent of of women saying that had some kind of abuse. Uh, it's 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 rampant. Any you talk to any woman, and so yeah. what happens then, Adam? It just, it is it becomes normal? Yeah. Like then we norm because it, it yeah. is normal. So it's normal and it's wrong. Like it's like yes, it happens. To most women have a story, especially if it's a woman my age. We have stories. It's not, mm. and so it ends up happening that it gets embedded, and you stop seeing it as. Some, you see it as just something you have to deal with. Like, it's just part of... Right. And then there's the right. thing... And then we blame... We do the whole blame the victim thing. And um, and that just, like... That it just infuriates me, but... Oftentimes, maybe you play the victim, blaming the victim just because it's uncomfortable and you don't want to face it, right? <laughs> We're running out of time. Let me just ask you to... Like, just to lighten the, the subject now. Tell me your most... Um, challenging interview let's say not the worst one of course but a challenging interview maybe if you can remember one and 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 your, your favorite one and then i'll tell you mine my most challenging was dina we're all very close and um and i knew that this was a step outside and i felt very yeah responsible and yeah so that was my um probably my most challenging and that's probably because we're so close well what's your favorite one anytime anytime i'm with david kyle like we are Uh, i mean the most fun like when he's here he comes and stays at the house and we have these small retreats and you know we go huckleberry we our retreats are never just all yoga we go hiking and we we go foraging and we do a lot outdoors because i live in a beautiful place and having him here he's just not only who i want to be when i grow up but also one of my favorite people to spend time with it it feels so natural and he kind of flies under the radar but he's very profound in his own very. quiet way he really is mm-hmm. and he's a very popular workshop guest you know could be doing those workshops very popular one of my favourite um, people um, who's my favourite one uh, I don't have a favourite I could 
I could I couldn't pick a favorite, uh, but I had, I thought I thought my I did a good job in Mary uh, Mary Taylor Freeman yeah. on uh, yoga and food and addressing the subject of difficulties with eating disorders and yoga and how it can potentially not necessarily help them, uh, which I thought was very important work and and I was very honest on it with myself, having suffered myself in my early years and uh, so that was I was really proud of that one. Of course, I love Dina and uh, and Shandor Remite. You ought to interview Shandor. He is uh, really a very, very special uh, guy. So in, interview Shandor. Probably Eddie was very challenging because he interviewed me a lot. So I found him challenging. Um, yeah. And as a couple I haven't aired, obviously I found those challenging. <laughs> um, I want to ask you though, what do you think your message is? Oh, what no. is your theme? What What's is your message? reason for doing the podcast and all that you do? Yes. I want to know. <laughs> uh, well, it was expanding the idea that I was expanding the, the debate beyond this just this rigid, literal sense of the Ashtanga. I just make it like I've had so many people come up to me and say, well, I've been injured by some stupid, stupidity of, uh, of teachers, adjustments. I just makes me so, I mean, I, I keep, a, I, I try and keep a low profile on these podcasts, but it makes me so mad um, that people have put off yoga. They, they, they stop yoga, either being injured by some stupid adjustment or being told that they can't, have to do half primary for the whole of their lives because they can't put their legs behind their head or binding Mary Chastner D or you know, yoga, as Shrat says, you know, there's no Ashtanga yoga, it's just yoga. You know, there's no, you know, he says that from the horse's mouth, as it were. There's no Ashtanga yoga, there's just yoga. And that is the point. You know, it's a method. If you like the method, great. You know, or if you don't like, quite like this presentation, well, can you still get the benefit of vinyasa, breath, and, you know, and bandha through making it like this for you? Because that's the point. You know, the, the, the point of the yoga is the, the, why I like what we call Ashtanga yoga, why I like this is because there has this way of getting you into your diaphragm and the diaphragm is the key through the idea sometimes for some people the counting for other people uh the posture with how to do it with the breast you know that there's there's a number of of, of tools within this ashtanga uh, of how to get one into understanding how the breath functions throughout the body right how the breath leads you into your own body how the the diaphragm is a trampoline to get you to understand the, the vital mechanism that's going on in your own body um, and how it clarifies your unconsciousness, you know? Uh, so, you know, that's, I think that doesn't have to be put forth in such a literal manner, you know, and you can find many ways of doing that. Um, and it's such a shame that there's these roadblocks that have been put there and, uh, and they don't need to be there. So, uh, yeah, well, uh, I would say thanks for, for uh, Peg, but um, it's been a joint endeavour and it's been wonderful to meet you, Alas, because you, I suppose, you, yeah, to say you were kind of a, a hero of mine, you know, really lifting the uh, the veils of the mystique of Ashtanga Yoga in the early years now when we really didn't have anything, you know, and we didn't know any of these teachers, what they were like, or you know, hear them speak even. So it's wonderful work that you've done, and I want to thank you. Uh, from, from everyone that has listened to your podcast and benefited from them, I want to thank you as well. Oh, well, Adam, thank you too. I mean, like, like it just it gives me joy to know that in any way I helped inspire what you're doing now because because we need your voice and your platform and your message. That is so important. And the next time we do this, and we will do it. The next time you have to 
like I talk less, you talk more. This is you. Right. <laughs> Let's call that a wrap. You're amazing. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, babe.